You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Union Road Presbyterian Church. For more information, join us on Facebook or visit our website at unionroad.org.uk. Scotland have recently been knocked out of the European Football Championships. But in the 1990s, there was one particular Scottish fan who grabbed the headlines due to his call to the talk sport radio station. Now, if you're not a football fan, don't worry, I'll explain. The caller was phoning to complain that the goalkeeper for his club, Heart of Midlothian, or Hearts, hadn't been selected for the Scottish national team. The goalkeeper's name, just for your information, and this is important, was Ante Niemi. It doesn't sound particularly Scottish, you say, and you'd be right. He's from Finland. But this caller didn't know that, and so you can see the confusion as the phone call unfolded. The caller was shocked that Anthony Niemi, his favourite goalkeeper, wasn't in the Scottish national team. And so the conversation went something like this, and I think it's going to be on the screen now. The caller phones up and says, I was wondering about the goalkeeper selection for the Scotland squad. And he must know hearts of a good team, but I just don't know why. For at least three seasons, he's been ignoring Anthony Niemi. The presenter then said, Anthony Niemi? The caller said, aye, I didn't know why he doesn't get a game. The presenter said, for Scotland. The caller said, aye. The presenter said, he's from Finland, pal. He's what, said the caller. The presenter said, he's Finnish. The caller said, he's not finished. He's only 28. <laughs> the presenter then said, no, no, not finished. He's Finnish, as in, he's from Finland. The caller said, what do you mean? The presenter said, his nationality is Finnish. The caller said, he's no Scottish. The presenter said, no. The caller said, oh, I thought he was Scottish. In Romans chapter 8, Paul is no finished. He's been left speechless by the grace that he's found in Christ in these opening verses of chapter 8, yet knowing there is still so much to say. What have we already seen in Romans 8? We've seen verse 1 that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We've seen in verses 2 to 11 that the Spirit comes to live within us, marking us out as a new people with new hearts and minds. We have seen that the Spirit takes away our dread of God and draws our hearts up to Him with a new sense of His fatherly love in verses 12 to 17. So the Spirit enables us to call Him Abba Father. We've read in verses 18 to 27 that we have seen frustrations of the creation that someday will be released from all of this and will be enabled to walk in a new world without sin or sickness, sadness, stress, and security. We have seen that as we make our difficult way through this journey of life, God is always at work for our good, shaping us and making us more like Jesus. And that the ultimate purpose of God is to bring us to His glory. Everything, yes, every minute detail, all things work together for good for those who love God. That's what David led us into in verses 28 to 30 last week. And so at this point, in Romans 8 verse 31, Paul lets out this great exclamation. In the face of all this, he says, what is there left to say? What is there left to say? He is left breathless with the excitement of it all, what God has done for us in Jesus. But Paul is so consumed with the wonder of God's grace, it's as if he's saying, I've got to find another way. I've got to find another way of expressing it, for it's the only thing worth talking about. John Piper puts it very powerfully when he says, 
And so must we. We must write another email, dictate another letter, teach another lesson, put up another plaque, write another poem, sing another song, speak another bedside sentence about the glory of Christ. What shall we say to these things? We shall say them another way, over and over again, until we die, and then to all eternity. And so Paul blesses us by finding one last way, one final way of sharing the gospel with us through these wonderful questions that he places in Romans 8. Five quick questions. Five questions to which there is no answer. Paul begins in verse 31. Do you see it there? With the first question, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? And our initial response to such a question would be, well, there are many people who are against us. Doesn't Paul read the papers or follow social media? All of us could make a list of the movements and the groups that are lined up against us as Christians. There is no shortage of opposition to Christ and the church and God's word. We've all come across that in everything from our staff rooms and offices and canteens and online. But Paul is not denying that. In fact, Romans chapters 1 to 3 explains that opposition and how that happens in a society when it seeks to suppress the truth about God and it goes its own way. And on a personal level, all of us know that we are very vulnerable to temptation, aren't we, all of us? The devil knows your weakness. The devil knows my weaknesses. Whether that be late at night, sitting on our own, or after a hard day of work, or a wearing few hours with an elderly relative, or scrolling endlessly and stupidly on our phones, leading us to places that we shouldn't visit and sites that we should never see, Or as we get older, it could be that friend or that church member or that neighbor who brings out the worst in us and makes us jealous. Or for others who face times of physical suffering, it's very easy for those times to make us bitter. We could happily make a list for Paul and say, this is the kind of opposition we face, Paul. But Paul says, yes, I know that. But if God is for us, nothing will keep us from him. Nothing. The fact when we stop and consider it, this is one of the most remarkable statements in all of the Bible, isn't it? For as sinful humans, with our rebellion before God warrants only his anger and punishment. Indeed, perhaps the most terrible words that any human being should ever hear in their lives would be when God turns to us and says, I am against you. And that happened in the book of Jeremiah and the book of Ezekiel. How terrible that would be to hear God say, I am against you. But how wonderful to know that God is for us. The transforming grace of the gospel is that God is now on the side of those he has loved and chosen and saved. If we are trusting in Christ alone for our salvation, the great God of the universe has declared his allegiance to us forever. He says, I am with you. It's not us saying, I am with you, God. It's God saying, I am with you. He has shown his hand and we're in it. He has shown his hands and our names are engraved on them. This doesn't mean that we won't face adversity, but we do have a deep divine reassurance. We have a certainty that God Almighty is not opposed to us, even though we deserve it. Sin can make us despondent. The devil can trip us up. Sickness can make us sluggish. 
Thieves can steal your car. Strife can wreck a marriage. Stress can break your spirit. A slump can take your job. Friends can let you down. Old age can rob you of your memory. Death can snatch a loved one away. But no one can loosen God's grip on you if you are in Christ Jesus. If I can put it gently but meaningfully, all these hard life events that I have listed that cause us sleepless nights and potential panic are like trying to stop a tank by throwing water balloons at it. You have no mission. If God is for you, he's with you, and he will always be with you. If God, hear it again, if God, G-O-D, if God is for us, it's God we're talking about here, who can be against us? The answer we should be crying back as Christians, nothing. If God is for us, who can be against us? We should all be shouting back, nothing, no one. No one can stop the eternal juggernaut of God's love towards us. Our salvation is secured even in whatever circumstances come our way. In fact, I want you to do something. As friends and brothers and sisters in Christ here tonight, we're going to put it on the screen. If God is for blank, who can be against me? If you're a believer tonight, I want you to read this with me now and put your name in the blank. So if I was reading, if God is for David, who can be against me? Right? Let's do that. As we read it together, you put your name in that blank. If you're a believer, you can say this. Let's say it together. If God is for David, who can be against me? Let's do it again, louder. If God is for David, who can be against me? Let me tell you, stand before whatever is weighing you down or holding you back and declare that to that challenge tomorrow and the day after, and the day after that. If God is for me, who can be against me? Here's a second unanswerable question. Verse 32. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? At the start of verse 32, and he us to find the answer of the who the him is in the question. The him is this world's ultimate he. It's Jesus Christ the Son of God. It's Jesus. You see what this verse tells us? Do you see it? Verse 33 33 there. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Do you see the logic of the verse? It's from the greater to the lesser. If God was prepared to go to the length of giving up his one and only son to save us, he will certainly give us everything we need to achieve his ultimate goal in our lives. This is conclusive proof of God's grace. Let me just spell it out so you all get it. God the Father did not spare his own son. God the Father did not withhold or lighten in any way the toll of judgment executed on his own well-beloved and only begotten Son. Look back at verses 15 and 16. We were reminded there that in Christ we are adopted into God's family. Yet a small but significant word such as own in these verses we're looking at, this was God's own Son. This was not God's adopted Son who was on the cross. This was his own son on the cross who was not spared in order that adopted children might be brought in and given the same home and so they could recognize God as father. There's such an intensity in this verse. On the one hand, there is the love of God, but he brings rebel children in. And on the other, there's the judgment of God that falls upon his only obedient, glorious son. 
that God the Son was damned and abandoned at the cross, seeking God's face and getting no reply. Jesus crying out to his Father, but getting no reply, crying out in the darkness and receiving only punishment as the Son of God takes our sin. The Father did not spare his own Son. He did not spare Jesus. This eternally treasured, glorious Son delivered over to be lied about, beaten, betrayed, spat upon, nailed to the cross, pierced with a sword like an animal at the butchers. And he's there for us. God the Father hand over his most prized possession, this most precious person, the Son that he loved and adored. What a generous God. What a loving Father. And it was not that the Father delighted in the agony he experienced, but God did not spare because his heart was set on sparing you and sparing me. He didn't spare Jesus so he could spare you. All too often I hear, we ask, our consciences say, it feels like God just doesn't care. Doesn't care. Doesn't care. He has withheld nothing from us. In fact, he has sacrificed everything for us. We need to stop feeling sorry for ourselves and start feeling loved. The logic holds that if God donated his greatest gift in the person of his son as our savior and sacrificed for sin, then there is nothing that he holds back that we really need. Question three is in verse 33. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? This question and the next bring us into the imaginary law court. But Paul's argument is that no prosecution can succeed since God himself is our judge and he has already justified us. That is, he's already declared us in verse 1 to be not guilty. There's no condemnation because we're in Christ. Way back in Romans chapter 2, verse 5, we read these words, because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. And this is the danger facing all of mankind on the last day. But because God has chosen us, and if we follow the golden chain that's been outlined for us in chapter 8, verses 29 and 30, that we are called and justified and glorified by God himself, then when it comes to judgment day, we will be declared not guilty on the basis of what Jesus has already accomplished. Of course, there are many charges that can come at us. There are many accusations from without and within. Our own consciences even accuse us. Even sitting here tonight, we know our own sin. Our lives betray us. Our own actions frustrate us. And even people looking on may even comment that we couldn't possibly be a believer if we behaved like that. And Satan is also known as the slanderer in Revelation 12, verse 10. He's called the accuser of the brothers. He loves to point his finger at Christians. We've got tongues wagging against us, fingers pointing at us, we have our own faltering hearts showing how terrible we are. We begin to doubt ourselves and believe that we're not good enough. But we never have been, and we never will be. And that's the whole point. It took someone else. It took another person. It took the Jesus we've just been thinking about who died to save us. And so God considers the case closed and finds in our favor, not because he's lowered our standard, his standards or lost his stomach for punishment, because the justice of the law has been satisfied for us at the cross. For God the judge is our Father. 
God, the judges are just a fire. All accusations against us are eternally silenced and the case collapses. Anything that could be accused or thrown at us collapses because we stand complete in Christ. Question four, verse 34. Who then is the one who condemns? And the answer relieves us immediately. It says in verse 34, no one, no one can condemn us. Christ Jesus who died more than that was raised to life is at the right hand of God and also interceding for us. Why do all the accusations fail when they come at us? It's simply because of Christ, isn't it? That is, Jesus died for us. Jesus rose again for us. Jesus sits in heaven for us right now. Jesus is praying for us at this very moment. Jesus was cursed and condemned. He was found guilty and justice fell on him. He became our substitute. Let me summarize it very quickly like this. The essence of sin is man putting himself in God's place. But the essence of salvation is God putting himself in man's place. But then you see Jesus rose from the grave. His human body was raised to life by the Father, who by doing so demonstrated his acceptance that the sacrifice of his son was satisfactory. God was saying by raising Jesus to life, this is enough. This is a perfect sacrifice. Nothing else needs to be added. Sin is paid for completely. And now this same Jesus sits at the right hand of God as the symbol of his finished work, occupying the place of supreme honor. And there he speaks for us and he intercedes. Ray Ortland puts it like this. We have not a dead Jesus, but a living Jesus, raised from the dead, and not just a living Jesus, but a glorified Jesus at the right hand of God. And we are always in his, on his heart. We have no problem too great or too small for him to solve. We have no sin too dirty for him to cleanse. His compassion is always upon us, and he is able to see us all the way through glory. Your sin cannot keep you from your glory, because your sin is what is your interceding priest removes. I told you about Avenil being the first school I taught in. Back in 1998, I had my first ever job interview. But here's the thing. It was two years into a job that I was already doing. Because in 1996, two years previously, I'd received a phone call from the principal of the school in Belfast who wanted a male teacher to teach P5 or P6, coach football and summer sports, and over the phone, on the spot, said, do you want it? Change days now, poor teachers, you're trying to apply for a job now. I was granted a job before I even met the principal. Well, two years in, I had to actually go through the process of applying and being interviewed for that very job I was doing. But the interviews were being held in the classroom next door to mine. At 4 p.m., I must confess, I strutted out of my classroom and stepped about three meters and joined the seating beside two other candidates who were there. First of all, the cleaner, Karen, it was East Belfast, so she was called Karen. Karen came past and said, Dave, what are you doing sitting out here? I said, I'm going for an interview. I'm sure you'll get a new bar, son. And we chatted away. One of the candidates looked at me and said, do you know her? I said, yeah, I teach here. Then one of my fellow teaching colleagues went past and wished me well and said, I'm sure it's yours, no bother. Then a parent came past who'd been in another room and asked what was happening, and I explained. And she said, oh, that's a gimme. By the time all this happened, one candidate nervously asked, so have you been here long? And the other one was about to leave when her name was called, and she had to go in. At the interview, it was much more relaxed than these days. 
I was sitting before the principal who had employed me and urged me to apply for the job. I was sitting before three parents whose, whose children I taught, a colleague who had become a good friend, and the chair of governors who had awarded me with our little football team a trophy we'd won at assembly at the end of the last week. And yes, I did get the job. Not that it was a stitch-up or anything, but it wasn't about what I knew. It was about who I knew. In heaven tonight, it's not about what you know. It's about who you know. You've got God the Father smiling upon you and his children. You've got God the Son who gave his life for you, praying for you. And you've got God the Holy Spirit who's standing up as a witness for you. It's no gainer, folks. God is for you. Who can be against you? The Father looks at the Son and sees obedience and justice. The Son looks at the Father and said, These are the people I purchased with my blood. And the Spirit cries to the Father, These are your children. Oh, the devil delights in dragging us down and dispiriting us and whispering in our ears that we have no right to enjoy God and that we deserve to live miserable lives and that we must go about our days under a great cloud of our sins and there were such hypocrites and we should feel the weight of it forever. But in Christ, God gives us what we do not deserve. What sin does to us, the cross and Christ overrules it and makes it null and void. Our Savior lifts his nail-pierced hands over us tonight and he sets us free. Which leads us to our very last question, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And he's asking on our behalf, if there's anything, is there anyone, is there any moment that can break the bond that we have in Jesus and Paul immediately in these verses goes on to list seven situations that endanger our lives and cause us harm, from hardship to famine, persecution, like sheep to the slaughter and all kinds of trouble. And remember Paul's writing to this Roman readership, as these Roman Christians picked this up, they were in very real danger of being thrown to the lions in the Colosseum or their houses being torched or being tortured in the dungeons. This church in Rome knew all about suffering. And so Paul is emphasizing that despite pain and misery and loss, nothing and no one can separate God's people from Christ's love. And he remains convinced, verse 38, I am convinced, he says, that nothing in heaven above, nothing in earth below, no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck us from his hands. Yes, life might beat us up. We can get bruised and we can get broken along the way. Satan might pour out his vengeance upon us. People might make our life difficult. And how easy it would be for us all to say, well, I'll never trust God again on that. How can I go on if that's what I'm facing and this is how I feel? The Russian Red Army troops overran Berlin towards the end of the war in spring 1945. Most of the troops connected with the Allies, these Russians, were from peasant families and were very unfamiliar with the amenities of life in what was fairly modern Germany. For example, most of them had never seen bathrooms and plumbing before. And so whenever the Red Army troops landed in Berlin, they began to use the toilets to wash and peel their potatoes in. And since they didn't know what bathrooms were for and couldn't find any outhouses, they simply went to the toilet wherever they felt like it. These Red Army soldiers gazed at German toilets but just didn't get it. And I think for so many of us as Christians, we're a little bit like those Red Army soldiers. 
We just don't get it. We don't let it sink in. We look at this from the winning side. We are the victors in Christ. We already have the victory in Jesus, but we don't get the wonder of the cleansing available to us and for us and the work that's been done in us. But the problem is not God's lack of generosity. It's our slowness of acceptance of the wonder of his love. Far from alienating us from God's love. Look at verse 37. It tells us, listen to this, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Those are incredible words. We are more than conquerors through him who's loved us. The Greek for this is we are hyper winners. The Latin translation is even more incredible that I love. It is we are super vincimus. We are super men and women, literally. We are super winners. You know, if you win an Olympic gold medal at the Tokyo Games in a few weeks' time, you only hold that title for four years. If you are someone who is in Christ Jesus, you are his winner forever. Forever. No handing back the medal. No matter how you feel or what you're going, you are a victor forever. Friends in Union Road and others watching on tonight, if you are a Christian, I want you to get your identity tonight and know who you are. You mightn't think much of yourself and say, oh, I'm just an ordinary person. I'm just a weak Christian. I'm shallow and I'm even quite a failed follower. But my greatest desire for you, as I take my leave of you, as a pastor is to say, genuinely, you are super men and super women if you are in Christ. That's not being sentimental because I'm leaving. But if you're trusting in Jesus Christ as your Savior, He thinks you're great. He thinks the world of you. Because He gave His best for you. Not because of your sin, but because you're bound up with His Son. Paul wants us to see that our anxieties for the moment These things have no power to sever our relationship ever with Christ. God's pledge is not that suffering will never afflict us, but that nothing will ever separate us. John Stott concludes, Our confidence is not our love for him, which is frail and fickle and faltering, but it's his love for us, which is steadfast, faithful, and persevering. This love of God is how the gospel makes heroes out of ordinary sinners. Nearly finished. Jeff McElrath, in his little book, Why Jesus, tells the story of the curious case of George Wilson. George Wilson and his accomplice accomplice robbed a mail carrier in the Midwest of America and were condemned to death for their deeds. His accomplice was hanged for his crimes just a few days afterwards. But due to his connections with some influential people, Wilson was granted a pardon by President Andrew Jackson. The death sentence was replaced by 20 years imprisonment. But amazingly, Wilson refused to accept the pardon, becoming the first man to do so in American legal history. And so it actually raised a question in the American Supreme Court. Can someone be forced to accept a presidential pardon? The judgment was made and the answer came back, no. The key statement in the ruling was this. A pardon, which is an act of grace, 
carries no force unless it is accepted by the individual to whom it is offered. Did you hear that? A pardon which is an act of grace carries no force unless it is accepted by the individual to whom it was offered. George Wilson continued in his refusal to accept this pardon, and he was hung in 1833. I know that there are people in Union Road tonight and watching at home, and you are amazed and intrigued by this incredible life described by Paul here, one in which God has worked savingly for us and offers us pardon and peace in the future, safe and secure, freed from hell and punishment and condemnation. How foolish it would be, like Andrew Wilson, if this glorious grace that you were offered tonight, you turned round and said, No, Lord, I don't want it. I'm happy with hell. That's the reality of it, friends. If you say no to this generous, glorious, amazing grace offered to you tonight, you are saying no to the offer of the most glorious salvation, and you're being sent to the most horrendous damnation. Let us let the love of God be the soundtrack to our lives. Let's crank up the volume of this grace, and let us live and love and serve to the beats of this redeeming Savior. Whatever we are facing, whatever grim reality we are suffering, let's stop thinking of ourselves as victims and begin to see ourselves as victorious. In some very, very dark days between Christmas Day 1995 and New Year's Day 1996, we nursed my father at home as he was dying of cancer. And those days were a horrendous struggle for us as a family because of the evil one cast up the sins of his past and the mistakes that he had made and the job that he had left half done, my mum would kneel down by his bedside and sing in his ear. Peace, perfect peace. In this dark world of sin, the blood of Jesus whispers peace within. Peace, perfect peace our future all unknown. Jesus we know, and he is on the throne. Peace, perfect peace, death shadowing us and ours. Jesus has vanquished death and all its powers. God has never promised any of us his comfort, but he has given us Christ. And we might get confused at times over what's happening to us. And whilst we mightn't be Scottish, at times we might feel like we're finished. That we're done and drained and down and out. And so let's set our hearts and minds to Jesus. For then we will feel and know that we are loved. For there we see a God who fights for us. A God who gives to us. A God who defends us. A God who cares for us no matter what happens, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord.
We're going to use some words on the screen as a response in prayer just now, using these words from Romans chapter 8. I'm going to read the words that where it says D-L, and you read the words that say all as a prayer of response taken straight from Romans chapter 8 tonight. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, neither present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The Lord is our salvation. Let's stand and praise him. Thank you.